All right, imitators of God, and tonight we're just going to be looking at this topic of hard work. So, look down in verse 28, and we're going to pick up there. Well, we'll, we'll let's jump back in verse 25, and we'll, we'll end on verse 28 here. Therefore, having, putting away, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. So really, the first aspect of being imitators of God is being a truth teller, a truth, truthful person person characterized by truth, not deceit anymore. Next, verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So number two, that would be uh, restraint and righteous anger. That's actually what we're to, to cultivate, is a righteous form of anger and being quick to reconcile. That's the idea, quick to reconcile in the body. If you want more on that, it's online. Um, verse 28 the next, let the thief no longer steal, steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So tonight we're going to look at this topic of, of hard work. And, and this verse really unfolds in two parts. It's the mandate and the motive. That's what we're calling it. The mandate and the motive. Easy to remember? And this is highly ironic but I don't normally do this, but I stole this from, uh, from another pastor. So we're talking about not stealing, and I did that. Just going to quick confession. Not stealing hard work? I didn't do that. No, I'm just kidding. I couldn't think of a way to improve it, so I was like, yeah, this is great. The, the mandate and the, uh, the motive here. All right, the, this mandate really unfolds in, in two parts. There's a, there's, he tells us to stop doing something and start doing another thing. So he says, stop stealing in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. It is. Straightforward. So stop stealing. You, you used to steal whenever you weren't in Christ, and, and stop. So it doesn't take much to realize that theft in our world is a huge problem. It's huge. It's estimated that, anybody want to give, give a guess of how much is stolen out of just, just retail stores in America? Take a wild guess. No. Not that high. Three trillion. I can't even conceive of that much. How many zeros? So it's in between there. $33 billion a year in America of theft from, from big box stores. Shoplifting. Now, and that stat was even before all the craziness, all the looting and riots and all that, all that stuff. So... I'm sure it's just gone up. And as, as shocking as that is, I mean, it was to me, too, when I, I saw that stat, it really shouldn't surprise us, because to steal is part of the, the condition of the old man. It's part of the, the corrupted, edemic nature. It's what we were. And Paul's telling these Christians and us today that we need to put away stealing, and I think he's envisioning, in Paul's mind, stealing in all its forms. People of the new creation are not supposed to think and act like people of the old order. We're not to take what doesn't belong to us. We don't pilfer, we don't loot, we don't cheat, we definitely don't rob. And in fact, stealing is a, is a characteristic of Satan's realm, not of God's realm. He is described as a thief in John 10.10. 10. Paul says that thieves won't inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6.10. So stealing is a huge deal to God. 
And that's why Paul gives us this straightforward commandment that we, we shouldn't do it. But part of the reason for this command, the kind of the rationale, is because Paul does know us. He still knows, he understands what's going on in the Christian life. He knows that we're still tempted toward it. And that's because even though we're new creatures in Christ, we're still able to be influenced by the old humanity. Remember, we don't want to, get, we don't want to have like identity confusion. We are new creatures in Christ, but we're still able to be influenced by the old Adamic nature. And Paul knows that stealing is very much part of the old man, and uh, that's, that's, that's not hard to, to see. In the Mackey household, one of our children, uh, who we won't name, who's our only boy, <laughs> he has an innate worldview that his sister should not take anything that belongs to him, but that he is free to steal anything that belongs to her. Well, his, his nature isn't any different than his daddy's old nature, and, uh, and that's just part of the old sinful nature. Now, you may be thinking, now, wait a minute, Clay. I don't steal, and I never have, and I know it's wrong, and I don't do that. So, how was theft part of my old humanity? Well, it's important that we understand some, some of the, the subtle ways that we're tempted to steal. So, I just thought through some of these uh, this week. There's more we could list, I'm sure. But uh, i got a few examples for you up on the screen. Subtle ways we're tempted to steal. We're often tempted to take advantage of the generosity of someone else. To take advantage of the de- generosity of someone else. The slang for this is freeloading. We've all experienced it. The guy in the group project who doesn't pull his weight, right, and banks on the group to bail him out, if that's you, time to repent. The girl who expects her parents to do everything for her, when we don't pull our weight, when we don't fulfill our responsibilities that God expects of us, we take advantage of the generosity of others. And that's a subtle form of stealing. We do that. And I, there was a vivid illustration of this in my life as a, as a young Christian. The Lord converted me in um, my last semester of my freshman year at college. And when I came back to school in the fall as a sophomore, I had this extreme burden. My parents, I had loans, and my parents were fielding a lot of my schooling, just the bill for my schooling. They were very generous. But it was, I mean, we're like middle-income family. We're not wealthy. And they were, they were having a hard time. And I just remember as a Christian, like as an, as an unbeliever, I didn't care. It was just like, I wasn't, that wasn't even on my radar. But as a believer, it like crushed me that my parents were doing that. And it motivated me to, um, to pursue some form of income to help offset that. And so the Lord is gracious in, in providing that. But I remember that distinctly of, I am taking advantage of my parents' generosity at their expense. And the Lord, the Spirit of God was just very gracious to open my eyes to that, see that, and um, begin to make some changes. So I think that's just, a, just one practical example of how that might work out in the college years. But that's, that's just one example. We take advantage of the generosity of somebody else. Another example is uh, withholding something that rightly belongs to someone else. Withholding something that rightly belongs to someone else. So you should give it or you should pay it. But you don't. So this may be, I don't know where you're at on this, but it, 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 
it may be like declaring all your income on your, your income taxes or not doing that, not declaring everything you've made on your income taxes. The government needs that info. You're, we're required to declare those things. Or, or just maybe pocketing extra change from a clerical error at the grocery store. Or using your, employee, your employer's time for things other than work, right? Like social media or YouTube or just a lot of talking with your coworkers, right? Or how about working lazily or cutting corners, not doing the job right? The, the principle here is you owe your boss effort and energy, and that's why he's paying you. And so if you don't give that effort and energy, then you're, that's a form of a subtle way that we, that we steal from what's rightly owed. And just the last example is, is kind of a, a simple one, but just borrowing and forgetting to return the item. <laughs> forgetting is in quotes, right? Sometimes we, can I borrow a stick of gum? It's like, no, you can, you can have that. You know, you, you, don't, you don't need to send that back. Um, so, I mean, whether this is done intentionally or not, that's still a form of, of theft. Ultimately, you ended up taking something that didn't belong to you. Now, these are just a, a few examples of how we might be subtly tempted to steal, and there's more that we could list, but I just I want to get you thinking in that direction. Like, it's, there's, you, you are susceptible to this in some way. But that, that, that's not enough just to stop there, to think about maybe ways that, we're, that, we, that we do this. We have to get behind that. So we also need to think through why we might be tempted to steal, okay? Why we might be tempted to steal. So remember back to last week, Paul told us to, to put off the old man, which includes not just the behaviors, but the deceived thinking that leads to the evil desires that in turn leads to corrupting behavior. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, like this if you do, like this if you don't. Sorry, let me pan out, get my peripheries on here. Okay, it's just like I'm determining whether or not to review this, okay? So let's, this is important. So jump back up to verse 22 in the chapter. This will teach you guys to give me your, your responses quicker so we don't have to like go through review. Verse 22, he says, put off your old self. Notice this phrase. Your old self still plagues you, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That's how the ESV translates that. It's corrupt. Your old nature is corrupt through deceitful desires. But the, the better translation is it's corrupt through the desires that spring from deceit. The desires of deceit. It would be a wooden translation of that. But the desires in Greek that spring up out of being deceived. So to work that backwards, it means in the old nature, your old nature, who you used to be in Adam was fundamentally deceived about everything. And out of that deception then come desires from your heart that are also out of whack. You love sin. And then that corrupts you. That leads to corruption. So deceit desires corruption is the, is the, is the way that unfolds. So it's important then that we don't just think about stop stealing. We've got to think about why, why, did, why do we want to steal in the first place? Like, what's going on there in my thinking, in the deceptions, situations that lead to temptation? So, let's, let's think about a couple of these. Some of them may be situations, some of them may be uh, just attitudes in our hearts, or, and we're just going to try to get under some of these things, okay? Why might we be tempted to steal? Well, number one, 
in the Bible, we're in poverty uh, or we're in need. This was kind of a, a, like a duh moment, but I didn't realize how often the scriptures talk about this. It's important to know that, that being poor or in, in genuine need is a real temptation in scripture to steal. Um, <clears throat> if you've got a bookmark in your Bible, keep it in Ephesians and turn back to Proverbs 6.30. Just one illustration of this in Scripture. There's several, but Proverbs 6.30 says, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. People do not despise a thief when he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. So there are consequences according to this proverb, of stealing. But there's a, there's a, like an understandableness, I guess, to it like in the proverb. Like, yeah, you're hungry and, and he, he steal is a result of that. So it's important to know that, that poverty is a real temptation to steal in Scripture. But, but it doesn't justify the stealing. It makes it understandable. Like, we understand, we see why that's the case. But there's, there's also lies that are undergirding this. Okay? There's a, lot, there's a deceit that's happening in our lives, if we're in this situation that's, that's undergirding this, the, the, the deceit is that God's not going to provide. Or he's not gonna, he doesn't care about me. He doesn't see my need. So I have to take matters into my own hands. And I have to steal. But the reality, the truth, that our minds need to be renewed by, is that God does care. And he will provide. And you need to trust him in that. And of course, we could get into short-term, long-term solutions for this, this hypothetical person here, but short-term would be seek help from your church. We're going to see this. Seek help from your church for genuine needs, food, housing, clothing. You know, not your new pair of jeans that you want necessarily, but yes, there are, there are legitimate needs that the church is here to help. help. A short-term solution and long-term solution would be learn to get a job, learn to work hard, in order that you might become someone who can not only meet your own needs, but as we're going to see, be generous and meet the needs of others who might be in the same position in the congregation. That needy position. But more on this as we, as we get going. So all I want you to see is if you're in poverty or you're in need, there's going to be a temptation then to, to think about shortcutting and getting, getting what you need um, in an unbiblical way. So flip back over to Ephesians. That's first first scenario. Second scenario would be uh, we internally we're entitled and resentful. We're entitled, and then we have an entitled attitude, and that <clears throat> lots of times comes out in resentment when we don't get what we want. So something's happened to you. Something's happened, and and we've been hurt. We've been wronged. Whatever situation. And instead of forgiving the offender, we internalize it. Okay? It's not hard to imagine. Then we grow resentful of that individual, or teacher, or boss, or corporation. Eventually, we begin to seethe against that corporation, hate that corporation, or person, or whatever it is. And we begin to justify stealing, or, or pilfering, or some other thing. 
And we may even, stealing may even be an act of vengeance or an act of judgment in your mind to, to sort of vindicate your attitude. You might begin to think things like, well, they, they get what's coming to them. This big business has insurance. They'll get repaid. I found out, I was reading an article. This is like the number one um, reason people give for why they steal from, from big box stores. Um, is that they feel like they, they got ripped off somehow and they're entitled to what they're stealing. Uh, you know, they think things like, I'm not going to get repaid for being looked over for this promotion and I'm just going to take what's mine. So, I mean, there's lies all over that. Um, we believe that we're owed something, that we deserve good things. That is a lie. Okay, number one, the only thing I deserve is hell, period. As, a, as an image bearer who has rebelled against God and am fully culpable for that. And, but then the, the other lies, when we don't get what we want, or we don't, we don't get what we think we deserve, then that, that proud thinking grows resentful. When I start believing that I can and I should take vengeance into my own hands, I believe the lie that I'm the judge now. So it's my job to execute just judgment, which is a hilarious thought that we can actually be impartial in our <laughs> renderings of judgment. Think about this, okay? Just This is a side note. If a judge is involved in the case, guess what the judge has to do? He has to step down from that case because he would not be partial. But when we're sinned against, <laughs> guess what? We're involved in the case. Like there's going to be no impartiality happening on our part. So that just off the bat, it's, it's foolish to think that we're going to be able to like give an adequate judgment. The scriptures say that I'm not the judge, that God is. He's going to deal with every injustice on that final day. And my job is to trust him to forgive as I've been forgiven and, and defer judgment and be faithful in the moment to whatever he's called me to, whatever actions that would require of me. So, just giving you some, just helping you illustrate this principle of like, got to get back and think through um, these lies that we're tempted to believe and how they, they, they play out in, in life. So these are the first two, and then there's a third one that uh, is probably the most common, at least for me. <clears throat> okay, we're lazy and we're idle. All right, lazy and idle. Another way to say this is we love pleasure and we love to gratify our flesh. And we, on the flip side, we would resent hard work then. Work that's hard is bad. That's what we think. And like I said, this is definitely the most convicting for me personally. So if, if you're wondering if this is you, if like, ah, maybe, maybe I'm lazy. I don't think of myself as a lazy person or slothful. Here, here may be some signs, okay? Do you leave things that you're supposed to do undone? When you're working on something, do you do the parts that are easy for you and leave the harder parts out? When you think about the work uh, when you think about work, do you, do you kind of recoil on the inside? Like thinking work is bad and ease is really good? Kind of an internal attitude that you have. When you're trying to do something but it's not easy, do you get discouraged and then quickly give up? 
Do you like to act like little things are really hard? You know, you're kind of talking about the, the little inconveniences, they're like huge things. Uh, there's a hilarious example of this in Proverbs, by the way. It's the, the sluggard who complains about the, like having a hard time getting the fork to his mouth. Uh, you know, you guys know that. I mean, it's, it's funny for a reason. I mean, it's, it's like convicting, but it's funny. Um, it's like, whoa, that's such a silly illustration. But it, acting like little things are, 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 are terribly difficult. That's a characteristic of a, of a sluggard in Proverbs. Do you leave things to the last minute? Do you often talk about how much you have to do instead of actually doing it? Uh, these may all be signs that you struggle with laziness and idleness. And the reality is we all do at some level. And the scripture says that, that a lazy person, if it's unchecked and it just continues to unfold, will become a poor person, which puts you in category number one. Um, now you are going to be even more tempted to steal. Okay, So you see how these things kind of coalesce and come together. So what are, what are the lies undergirding this this way of thinking. Well, one of the fundamental lies operating here is that work is bad and leisure is good. Okay? Work is bad and idle, let me put it like this, idle leisure is good. Well, the reality is that idleness is very bad. Okay? It's very bad. God created us to be productive and useful. That's part of his creation. And idleness is the very opposite of usefulness. Make sense? It wastes time that we will never get back, and we're only going to come to regret it. Like, there is no, like, man, I'm really glad I blew that time. Ever. In the history of man. One pastor, uh, old pastor, dead pastor, um, talks about how all of creation is industrious and it's active, and he, he said that if we're idle, we are the shame of creation. His words. We are the shame of creation if we're idle. Listen to, listen to what he says. This is a direct quote. Um, I'm, I'm giving you this because you have to feel my pain in the study. You know, I just like, I was, I was uh, pierced by this quote. He said, all things that are most excellent in creation are most active. And all things that are most unactive are most vile and dead and drossy. Use that one. Use that word later. Don't, probably. He says, Shall the ant, the bee, and every creature be witnesses against you to condemn your sloth? Whoa. <laughs> He's, he, when he was drawn off that passage, go to the ant, you sluggard, like observe him, learn from him. So the, the, the reality is that, that we're, we're tempted, we're deceived all the time, right? So the, the idleness is good. That's great for us. It's really not. Um, you're going to come to regret that. And then on the flip side, work is very good. Work is very good. It, it's very rewarding and meaningful. Think about this. I mean, we could, this could be like a whole message on the, the profitability of work, but um, work is pre-fall. You ever considered that? Like it happened before the fall. It just got really tough after the fall. Uh, I was reading that. I was reading back through that today. Just the Genesis three account, like sweat coming off your brow, like thorns. I mean, it's just it's a it's a sad picture, and we experience that day in and day out in various spheres. But 
it's pre-fall, so it's good. It's very good. And then on the flip side, in the coming kingdom, as we reign with Christ, that's also a form of work. Like, we're going we're gonna to be exalted with Christ. The craziest thing in the world is that us as terrorists, one, one-time terrorists against God's kingdom, God is now exalted, seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and we're going to reign with him in the coming kingdom. And to, do, to the degree that you've been faithful here is the degree that you will be exalted there. That's the parable of the minus. So, that's a crazy thought, though, that we're going to reign with Christ in the kingdom, and there's going to be meaningful work for us to do after we're glorified and ready, ready to go. So this is incredible stuff. Work is good. You see, you see how we kind of get this flipped around. And, and Paul knows this deeply. He knows that work is good. Which is why he says next that we should not only stop stealing, but we should start working. Okay? Not only stop stealing, but we've got to start working. So we should be characterized by diligence, by a hard work ethic. As people of the new creation, as as imitators of God, we should be people who stay focused to get the job done with excellence. Okay? Stay focused. It's hard. Get the job done. Hard. With excellence. Hard. Okay? None of that's easy. But we should be a joyfully productive people, people who take uh, who, who take glad responsibility and try to live up to it. We shouldn't be people who are shirking responsibility, trying to get out of stuff. We, we, of all people on earth, should be people who take responsibility and try to then live up to that responsibility. So if, if you think about it, this, this, this hard work ethic, um, this is the way that God works. You can go back. We'll, we'll get to there in a minute. Our Lord patterned his, his work ethic after his father's. Okay, Think about Jesus. He, he patterns his work ethic after his father's. He says, w- when he was critiqued about doing good works on the Sabbath, he said, my father is working until now, and I am working. John 5, 17. And Jesus was the most productive person. He was the most productive man to have ever lived. At the end of the Gospel of John, John tells us that Jesus did many other things than what John had re- was able to record. And here, quote, he says, Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus was productive. And this is the way that God wants his children to work. Not in idleness and laziness. Okay, when I say that, don't think like, appropriate leisure, okay? Like, God created rest, too, and he commands that, and, and enjoyments of life, and they're the good gifts of God. But I'm, that's not our struggle, okay? Can we all be honest about that? Leisure is not our struggle. It's the opposite of our struggle, the hard, the hard work. So that's why I'm hammering this right now. The way that God wants his children to work is with, with joyful labor and productivity. Now, I want to draw out the verb that Paul uses here in this text. He doesn't just command us to work, but to labor hard is the idea. To labor to the point of exhaustion. Work to the point of like, kind of work your fingers to the bone. Kind of, We have these little sayings in English that we use to get at this idea. And that's what this verb implies. I'm not sure how your translations render this. The ESV says that rather let him labor. They use the word labor. 
but, but the verb implies that the, the work is difficult. It's like, a, the difficult, it's like an exhausting type work. And I, I, love, I love a lot of things about Paul, but I love his realism. Um, <laughs> especially about body life and things. You know, there's, there's, like, there's, there's commands that it's like, put up, with, put up with one another. You know, like in the church, like, just put up with one another. It's like, yeah, okay, that's pretty accurate. Um, people are putting up with me all the time. Like, there's just a realism that, that pervades all of the New Testament authors, but, but Paul in particular. And I like this, just, it's hard work. And it, it, it's, it's not supposed to be easy. Work's not supposed to be easy. We know that. We talked about Genesis 3. The ground is, is actually cursed, which makes productive work very challenging. Long hours in the library for you guys, or, or cubicle, or, or the difficult customers that come through your, your store, aching bones at the end of the day, and all poor yields, you know, of whatever your harvest is, or lack thereof. And all of that is expected, though. It's all expected. We're, 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 the ground is cursed. Work is difficult. Yet Paul wants us to consistently and joyfully give it all we've got. He doesn't want us to leave anything back. And that's the idea of this verb, to, to labor. And then he adds another phrase that continues to fill out this meaning here. The ESV says uh, we're to labor doing honest work with his own hands. Doing honest work with his own hands. And this, this phrase, again, just FYI, honest work, is literally uh, good work. Okay? Good work. It's work that, that contributes to the good of others. And I'm, I'm bringing that out because I think what Paul's doing here is he's deliberately echoing back to chapter 2, verse 10. Back to where he said we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay? So the, it's not a verb there, but it's the same, the same, two, the same two words here. And I think when they translate it honest, honest work, you miss that connection. So the purpose that, that for, of, our, of our salvation, of our new creation in Christ, is that, is that we perform these good works, that we work them out. And Paul's essentially drawing a one-to-one parallel here. This is, working hard is an aspect of those good, good works that he's created us to walk in. <clears throat> so we can say it like this. He, he's telling us to fulfill that identity by working good with our own hands. To personally get after doing good in our vocations, in our schools, our workplaces. And... <clears throat> Do you see how this, this transforms our vision of productivity? We're not just checking boxes off of our, our to-do list to feel better about ourselves or to feel like we're somehow in control of our lives. Being productive in the biblical sense means we're doing the most good we possibly can in the, in the life that we've been given for the glory of God. That's biblical productivity. We're doing the most good that we possibly can in the life we've been given for the glory of God. And when you die, you will not regret it. And in this context, in Paul saying, we're doing good through hard labor in our various spheres of that labor. So let's think through some implications directly for, for you guys. Directly, let's, let's say, I mean, there's some various situations in here, so let's take them one at a time. College students, okay? People who are in school, grad school, whatever, whatever you, whatever, wherever you may be. 
You're, you're in school not simply to get a degree, but to educate and equip yourself for usefulness to Christ. You see that? Whatever sphere you end up in, your goal remains the exact same. is to work hard to accomplish the most good in that sphere. That's your goal. And that should reign above all the other motivations. Is it important to, to make money? Yes. Important to provide? Yes. The biblical responsibility you have, um, especially if you're a man, you have a family, uh, you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't, Paul says. But the reigning motivation is that we are to accomplish good in that sphere to the glory of God as people of the new creation. Again, college student, you may need to shore up how you're approaching school and how you're thinking about that. So do you need to cultivate more diligent habits to bring God more glory? So think of it this way. If you had to give an account right now to Christ for how you're approaching school in light of this passage, would you be embarrassed or would you feel pretty good about it? And if you would be embarrassed, what about that would you need to change? I'm not saying you've got to change everything all at once, but just like pick something and begin to work at that by the power of God in Christ. Small baby steps toward more faithfulness. This is, I mean, this is, these are hard areas to change, trust me. I've been at it for a long time. <laughs> and am woefully humbled by how little change there is in my life. So, I get it. I get it. Or, student, you may have lots of ex- extra time, okay, that you're just flitting away in idleness. I talk to you, and it doesn't sound like you got a lot of extra time, but there may be a lot of extra time, okay, in reality. You're getting your school done, but you've, you've, got some, you've got some time floating around, so how can you redeem it? How can you maximize eternal reward by doing good? Maybe you need to get a part-time job and earn some money so we're going to see it, so you can actually be part of being generous in the church. Okay, You can do that as a college student. Um, you know, be able to be that generous, but you can, <laughs> you can have a little to give, right? Especially if you've got a lot of extra time. And if you need a job, let me know. I've got lots of connections in the church. People, you probably see that if you're in the Facebook group. I'm like posting job opportunities all the time. This is like unprecedented, guys. Like this never happens where there's all these jobs floating around that, that need to be done. So let me know. Or, I mean, you could volunteer for help, uh, to help others in, in, in meaningful ways. You could serve the church. There's lots of things you could do with that time. So I just, all I'm saying is I want you to think, if you've got time, there's nothing wrong with leisure, okay? And if you're super busy, you may need to kind of carve some time out for leisure, okay? But that's generally not the case. We generally have more time than you realize. So I want you to be thinking strategically about that in light of this verse. So, Students, okay, let's think about people who are working right now. Okay, maybe you're done with school, maybe you never went to school. That's fine. But you're working. Well, oftentimes, we find ourselves in a job that we didn't envision we would be in. Whether that's after graduating, or, or it's a filler-type job, or you know, maybe you hoped you'd be married by now, and you're not. Whatever the case, the temptation is to not work hard, because it's not what we want to do. Feel that? It's menial, doesn't pay well, our boss is just a jerk, you know? And I absolutely love this encouragement from, from 
the, the dead pastor, uh, same guy, Richard Baxter. I'll, I'll give you his name. Because he, he, if the last one was like a sword through your chest, this one will be nice. This will be, this will be better, okay? He's, I can't improve on this, so we're just, I'm just going to read it. He says, if, if you are called to the poorest, laborious calling, do not carnally murmur at it because it's wearisome to the flesh, and, and, and don't imagine that God accepts the less of your work and you, just because it's menial work. But cheerfully follow it, and make it the matter of your pleasure and joy that you are still in the heavenly master's service, though it be about the lowest things. And that he who knows what is best for you has chosen this for your good, and tests and values your obedience to him all the more by how much the meaner work you stoop to at his command. Isn't that good? Especially that last phrase. He's chosen this for your good and tests and values your obedience to him all the more by how much the meaner work you stoop to at his command. Meaning, the, the worse the work, the humbler the work, the, 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 the lower work on the totem pole, as you stoop, as you obey him and stoop to that, like that brings him pleasure. And he's testing your obedience and he's valuing it. The God of the universe in that moment where you're doing that menial task, cleaning that toilet, sweeping that floor, whatever you're doing, he's there. That's a sweet, sweet perspective. So those are some, just one implication for, for, for folks who are working. And then just one quick thought for our ladies. The same paradigm for hard labor in good works shows up in the sphere of marriage and family in Proverbs 31. So don't just think, oh, this is only about vocation, you know, out here. I want to be married, or maybe I am married. What about me? Well, the woman of Proverbs 31 is incredibly diligent, and she multiplies good works. She takes care of her family. She increases the wealth of her family. She enriches the wisdom of her husband. She helps the needy that are around her, all from her hard work as a wife and a mother. And the end result is that, that her husband and children rise up and call her blessed at the end of that chapter. So if God grants you a husband and a family one day, the same diligence that you're cultivating now, the same hard work in whatever sphere you're in, it can be applied there, will be applied there, and your family would be the better for it. So that's the mandate, okay, is to, to, to work hard. Start working, I think is the way it's, it's up there, yep. Stop stealing, start working. But the text doesn't end there, actually. Paul goes on to tell us why. He gives us the motive. Next. The motive. Look in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, instead of being perpetually in need and selfishly taking, we should be people that are positioned to be generous. That's what this text is saying. Generosity is one of the major, major motivations that should drive us to work hard. That's the way you could put that. And our motivations matter. We may find ourselves working hard, but motivated by completely sinful desires. Here are some common sinful motivations that cause us to work hard. Okay? The love of pleasure. We work hard to make money 
so that we can enjoy the weekend or enjoy our free time. We want money so that we can spend it on ourselves. Now, like I said, the Bible certainly gives us a category for enjoying God's good gifts and even using our resources to obtain them for ourselves and the ones we love. But when your hard work is dominated by this desire, that's when we know it's gone astray. Again, a lot more we could say on this, just touching on it, just putting it on your radar. The love of pleasure could be a reigning motivation for you to work hard, or maybe it's just the opposite for you. You don't want to blow your money on pleasure. You see that that's dumb, okay? Because you've got to work hard for your money. So instead, you're anxious about the future, what might happen. So you want to hoard it all. You want to save, and you invest everything that's left over at the end of the month into your investment account, or whatever it is. Some of you are like, what's an investment account? We'll talk about that later, okay? And again, there's, a, there's definitely a biblical category for this. It's called wisdom and provision, prudence. You're saving up for unforeseen expenses for retirement. I know, you can even think about that now, right? Um, so you won't be a burden on your children or, or, or loved ones, etc. But, but what I'm talking about, this goes beyond this mere desire to save in wisdom. This is an anxious desire to be fully secure in yourself. An anxious desire to be fully secure in yourself. You don't like the risk of having to trust God to provide for your needs, so you seek to fully provide for yourself, or at least you think you are. The scriptures are so clear to just like unravel that whole thing. It's like it can be gone in an instant, the Lord says. So it's foolish to put our hope there. But that's what we want to do. But, but here's the catch. You never have enough. Like, there's never enough in the bank account. So what's the antidote? Well, Paul Hatt says it right here in our text. It's generosity. Generosity. Sharing what you have with others. It doesn't mean not saving. It doesn't mean not enjoying. In fact, I would argue that you should do both as you're able. You should enjoy and save. But what's most important, more than saving, more than enjoying... And what should be our driving motivation is to be able to share the fruit of our hard work to provide not just for ourselves, but also for the legitimate needs within the body of Christ to advance kingdom work. That should be the reigning motivation of why you go in and you clock in to work hard. And that's why Paul uses the verb he does in this verse. He, he doesn't envision you working hard so that, that you can just give it all away to the church. That's not, that's not the reality. He says share. Right? It doesn't say give it all. Share. Share what you have. He envisions you working hard so that you have something to share, something extra to give. And if we could look at biblical principles for giving, we're not going to do that. We're already like way over. Okay? So that's, that's the concept here. So this is modeled beautifully in the early church. It's, it's, this church in Macedonia even gave, they were poor. And Paul says they gave sacrificially out of their poverty because they wanted to be a blessing to other churches who were in need. And I, I think it's, it's helpful for the college student and poor pastor category because, you know, we can make lifestyle changes. We can reduce our standard of living maybe even go without some basic necessities for a short time in order to give, if this is our motivation. And Paul describes it there as an overflow of their joy. He says they gave their hearts first to the Lord 
and then to the work. <laughs> it's just important priority. And, and if we're like, okay, Paul, like you're, you're hammering us here. Like, you're an apostle. Well, Paul's not just commanding this. He models this, this lifestyle of generosity. He modeled it again and again during his lifetime. He would often not take pay from the churches that he had a right to. In fact, they were supposed to pay him, and he would refuse it. Not all the time, but sometimes. To make a point, he would work hard to raise his own support so that he could be generous himself. At the end of Acts 20, Paul echoes the words of Jesus when he says, we are more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, 35, more blessed to give than receive. And that's what drove Paul. We're more blessed to give than receive. But if we're honest, we don't believe that. We don't. Like, it's just not operational for us. We would think about it the opposite way. It's more blessed to receive than give. But why are Jesus' words true here? How, how is this the case? Okay, we're going to end in, around here, okay? So we're not, I don't like, have like four more pages. So hang with me. How is this the case? This is super important. Well, because of the greater joy that, that, that giving brings. Like, it legitimately does bring greater joy. Now, these are going to ratchet up, okay? So there's greater joy in helping others. There's greater joy when we know that we're bringing God pleasure in our obedience. That's better than, than just spending up stuff on ourselves. There's a deeper joy, more lasting, more fulfilling joy there. But it also, and this is huge, okay, Giving in the Bible, giving in Scripture, is the best kind of investment for you. It's the best kind of investment. It's not a sacrifice. So, yeah, we can't go here. Okay, you can write down Luke 12, Luke 12, 33. Because there, Jesus talks about, like, selling your possessions, giving to the needy, and acquiring for yourselves money bags that don't grow old. I guess I just quoted it to you. So, uh, we did kind of go there. So money bags that don't grow old, where, where thief and moth, they can't get to them. So we think of giving as like we lose it. It's gone. But according to Christ, we invest it. Like it's an investment in the greatest exchange ever, okay? We're investing in a stock market that's never going to crash. And it will return to us way more than what we actually, we actually put in. So that's his point. Give there... And it's the best kind of investment for you. An illustration that I've used before, maybe you've heard this before if you've been around, but it's like you're playing Monopoly and you're like super engrossed in the game of kind of the fake money. And you're like buying houses and like that's really cool. And then all of a sudden somebody's like comes by you and they tap you on the shoulder. And you look over and they're like, hey, would you like to buy that real house? Yeah. With what? Well, you can use the Monopoly money to buy the real house if you want to. Or you can just keep buying the playhouses in the game. It's going to end in like 30 minutes. And you're like, well, I'll do that. Like, I'll buy the real house. Well, that's the point, is that you can buy the real house by giving. Like, it's not going anywhere. And you're going to return, it's, it's going to return in blessing on your head. So that is the, that's the perspective. That's why it drives Paul. That's why Jesus is, it's not just like an aphorism. Like, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Like, that's actually true. And, and this is the cool part. Generosity, living with an open hand, being willing to share, 
that is the means by which you loosen your heart's grip on the world and grow more kingdom-minded. That is the very means that you grow in this way, is by, by, by giving some money away. So you think, I need it to save. And there's a secret desire. And you're like, ah, I have this desire, like this anxious desire that I, I need to hoard. But I'm going to give it, you know. And I'm not talking about being unwise, being unwise. Okay, so let's, we've got to work through principles. But like, okay, I've got to give this, and I, get, and, I, and I open my hand up, even if it's just a dollar, you know, open it up, that's good for your soul. Because Jesus says that wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be also. So if meaning, and that's in the same context in Luke 12, that if you're giving to heaven, wherever that money's going is where your heart's going. Like it has, it has an effect on your heart. So it, it loosens the grip. It loosens your heart's grip on the world, and it grows more kingdom-minded. So if you're like, I don't have any desires for Christ or the kingdom, where's your money going? How are you thinking about work? Is it all about you? Well, yeah, your heart's going to be where you treasure it. It's going to follow that. If you're investing in this world only, that's where your heart's going to be. So these are just important. You can see how important they are. Like life-giving principles here from the words of Christ in Luke 12. So we work hard for this reason, so that we have something to share with those in need. And I love this verse because it comes full circle. Okay, We who were once thieves and accustomed to stealing, accustomed to laziness, accustomed to cutting corners, accustomed to making excuses, we who were once that are learning to work hard. Why? Because we're new creatures. Because we want to be participating in being generous. Because guess what? The needy person comes in to the assembly, the person in poverty, they're tempted to steal. That's where you were. But now you've worked hard. Now you have something to give. Now you alleviate the temptation to the needy person that just walked in. Isn't that a cool full circle in like God's redemptive plan? (laughs) And what he's doing here? Uh, It is. So let's pursue this together. I know you're young. I'm not that much older than you. Being diligent in work is a struggle. I get it. And it's especially hard for for those less mature, those younger, because when you're younger, you're less disciplined. You haven't had as much suffering in your life, and and so there's there's not as much maturity, and that's okay. The Lord is faithful. He's going to help you. It's a slow process, but, but we're here to help, and we need each other in this area. So remember that God can do far more in you, Paul says in Ephesians, than you would ever dare to dream or imagine because of the power that's at work within you by his grace. He can do it. And will do it. It's, it's planning to do it. So, as always, we're here to talk afterwards. If you if you have questions or want to hash something out, um, please come come talk to any of us. We would love to love to feel some of these things. Let's pray. Father, we need your power to become hard workers. Inspire us, Lord, to that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.